0: I'll have you now turn with me in your pew Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, where we'll be spending our time this morning in chapter 6. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 6. This can be found on page 304 of your pew Bibles. And so as we're turning there, it's good to know that over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through the life of King David on his journey to the kingship, his journey to reigning over Israel. And we've been sort of taking a whirlwind tour, looking at different episodes in his life. And so far, we've seen episodes like David being anointed as king before his time, but it was sort of a preparatory moment for him. Then uh, his defeat of Goliath in battle, we've seen that as well. Uh, We've seen his friendship with Jonathan, the son of Saul. We've seen how he takes care of Saul through the ministry of music. Uh, And we've seen even last week how David was gracious towards Saul when he had uh, really no reason to be. He had every right to be upset and angry. And nevertheless, when he had chances to kill King Saul, he did not take them. And so in today's lesson, we're now jumping ahead from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, and it's helpful to know that in the meantime, Saul has now died in warfare and battle, and now David has begun his his rise to the throne. He becomes the king of Judah. There's different tribes in Israel. Israel is not yet united, but as David comes to the throne, there's a few obstacles in his way in order to become the king of a united Israel. One of those obstacles is the son of King Saul, whose name is Ishbosheth. And so that's sort of an obstacle. Who is the, 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 the crown supposed to go to? There's sort of a divided monarchy here. Uh, in the meantime, but then Ishbosheth is assassinated, which clearly then leads to the reign of King David. David, of course, has nothing to do with this, and he condemns these events. Uh, nevertheless, he becomes the king now of a united Israel, and so Saul's death, then you might say, sets the trajectory for a new uh, a new line of the story, a new uh, beginning with David coming to the throne. And it happens with these few obstacles, but of course he comes. And now he's the king. And so this morning's text, we begin to see what he does as this newly installed king. In the previous chapters, we see that David has beaten the Jebusite people. He has won a victory over them. And in that victory has taken the city of Jerusalem, And now he is making that city his royal city. It becomes the city of David. And so he's not only making it a political force. Now in this morning's chapter, we're going to see how he makes it a spiritual force. The center, this religious center of all of Israel. And so with this in mind, let's pray to the Lord and ask him to guide our our reading this morning. Our God, we come to You knowing that Your Word speaks truth, that Your Word speaks to us who You are and what You have come to do in the affairs of men. Lord, we pray now as we turn to this chapter in the book of 2 Samuel that You would reveal Yourself to us, that we may better know You, that we would better love You, and that we would better serve You as our King, the true David. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Second Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, so David and all the household of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. and as the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the son or the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart, and they brought in the Ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house, and David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, his female servants, as one of the vulgar shameless, fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his, pe- his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Of all the great societal advancements that have been made in modern times, perhaps the one that has the most real impact on the Dewey household is free two-day shipping. Thanks to companies, of course, like Amazon.com or Target, and while I'm extremely grateful for this advancement, I often am left scratching my head wondering how and why they can so often send such small items in such large packages. Have you ever seen that? You get this tiny little thing and it comes in a huge box with all these air pillows And you're left there for the next 10 minutes, popping each air pillow, if you're like me, one by one, so that you can put them into the trash and they don't take up all the space. And so you'd think with this modern world that we live in, that they would be able to figure out a way in order to find a proportional box or package to rightly fit whatever item you are having shipped to you. I guess maybe this will happen someday. We can only hope that this will begin to be more and more the case. Uh, But as we think about the pure amount of items being shipped all over the place and all the UPS trucks or the Amazon vans that we see driving around town, there is one classic feature of the shipping industry, which I'm very thankful for. I know Bailey is very thankful for. And that is the shipping industry's way of communicating to delivery drivers that an item is of extreme value or that it's very fragile. So we all know the famous words, fragile, handle with care. And there are some things in life that really do need to be kept safe. They really do need all those air pillows to protect them and to keep them from being scratched or broken along the way. And in some ways, this whole idea is what's happening here in our passage this morning. There is something of extreme value being delivered from one place to the next. And that is David and his men, his 30,000 men, picking up the Ark of the Covenant and bringing it now to David's new royal city. But this package, of course, is not just any package. It's not just an important religious item. It is really the central religious item of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant faith. This was the most Important item they could have picked up. This was the Ark of the Covenant. The object for ancient Israelites through which God's presence was revealed and made manifest and known among men. And here's where many of us get stuck. We often begin to think of all the Indiana Jones uh, sort of mythology of the Ark of the Covenant. And we may wonder, where is the Ark of the Covenant? today, or maybe we just ask ourselves, what is the Ark? What is the Ark of the Covenant? Why was it so important? What did it look like, and what was its significance? And so to understand the Ark of the Covenant, we have to go back to the book of Exodus, uh, where the instructions for the building of the Ark of the Covenant are given from God to Moses. And so there we can see what its purpose was. And you can see in this photo on the screen what it would have looked like, something like this. And so we read about its overall size that is explicitly commanded, that it should be in American measurements about four and a half feet long and about two, a little over two feet tall and about two feet wide. And we're, we see that it's to be completely overlaid with, with gold. And that uh, for its functionality, it was to have these four rings through which two poles would cross through. And that was how it was to be carried from one place to the next. And it's specifically supposed to be carried by Levitical priests. But most importantly of all, this passage in, in Exodus 25 teaches us about the ark's spiritual significance, not just its design. And it teaches really clearly about the mercy seat or the covering on top, which was pure gold, a gold slab with two golden cherubim facing one another with their wings outstretched. And it was here that the, on the Day of Atonement, the, priest, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and would pour out the sacrificial blood upon the top of the ark. And that was how atonement would be made. And according to this passage, the ark also contained some objects. In the days of Moses, it contained the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the law. And as time goes on, we see that it also comes to contain the budding staff of Aaron. And we also see that it holds manna from the wilderness. And so it contains these important pictures, images of the, the history of the nation of Israel. But most importantly of all, at the end of this passage where the instructions of the ark are given, we read these words in verse 22. The Lord says, there in the ark, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so to put it simply then, in ancient Israel, the ark was the beating heart of Yahweh's presence among his people. It was where he was most centrally located and found among his people as they ventured through the wilderness, as they came into the promised land, and now as it was being delivered to the city of David. One Reformed pastor and Bible scholar named Peter Lightheart simply says this, the ark is a microcosm and a micro tent a single item of the tabernacle that mimics the structure of the whole tabernacle. I like that imagery, a microcosm and a micro tent. It's, it's a miniature tent, and it's where God's presence can be found. And so it's no wonder then that it is of the utmost importance for the Israelites to, to take now to the holy city of David. And so one thing we ought to learn from this morning's passage then, I think, is that We ought to take the presence of God with the utmost seriousness. We ought to handle it with great care. The ark was the single most important object of the religious life of ancient Israel, as we've seen. And so it's no wonder that David, having just become the king of Israel, wants to install it in his city and give it a proper home in this tent that he puts up just for this occasion. And this lesson, to handle it with great clit, with great care is quite clear from the story here that we see about the, the man named Uzzah in verses 5 through 8. For it's there that we read that as David and his men now pick up the ark and they're beginning the first attempt, we might say, to bring it to the city, they're overcome by this overflow of emotion and ecstatic joy. This was a time of great celebration but as they were celebrating before the Lord, as verse 5 tells us, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, all of which just add to the noise that this must have been uh, this, this great procession. And interestingly also, I should point out that music was not, not really a point of Israel's worship up to this point. There were different times where a trumpet would be sounded in order to signify something, but it was David's tabernacle, David's tent in this procession which really changed the way that worshiping God began to look and really be how it began to sound. And so this demanded, this joyous occasion demanded such an occasion, such a celebration with all this music, all this beauty. And so right in the middle of all this excitement, which would have probably looked something like a Super Bowl parade or a World Series parade at the end of the season something goes drastically wrong. It all comes to a screeching halt. And for whatever reason, one of the oxen pulling the cart, maybe spooked by all the loud noise, uh, he trips up this oxen, or this ox, and you can imagine that the Ark of the Covenant perhaps begins to wobble. And so instinctively, Uzzah reaches out his hand to stop the Ark from falling, to make sure that it is kept safe. But then, strangely, in verse 7, we read the following words, "...the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God." As you can imagine, for everyone enjoying this parade, this was a little bit of a buzzkill. As one observer has aptly put it, "...a fresh corpse will put a damper on the celebration every time." That's absolutely right. You can imagine... All these 30,000 people making this great journey with this ark, and all of a sudden somebody drops dead. How could God do this? This was David's experience. It was a mixture of fear and outrage. The problem, however, is that Uzzah and his brother Ohio got it all wrong from the get-go. Notice how back in verse 3 we are told that they carried the ark, quote, on a new cart. A new cart. The key is that they put it on a cart. Interestingly, there was some precedent for this way of transporting the Ark. Back in the book of 1 Samuel, when the Philistines had control of the Ark, after conquering the Israelites in war and taking the Ark into their own land, they began to be cursed by the Ark's presence. And so they put together a new Ark and they had oxen pull the Ark on a new cart. And so it was the Philistines' way of transporting the Ark back then. So if we recall, though, Exodus 25, we can remember that the Ark was specifically built with those rings and the poles. And so the instructions there were that only Levitical priests were to carry the Ark, not on a cart, not in this new way, on this new cart, but in the way that the Lord had specifically commanded to them. And so the crux of the matter then is this. Though God had given explicit commands on how to carry the ark and who could carry the ark, these Israelites in all their excitement and exuberance and and happiness They'd either dangerously ignored or foolishly overlooked these all important details. And for Uzzah, good as as his intentions might have been to protect the ark from falling, it cost him his life. And so the first lesson from this chapter then is actually quite easy to see. We must worship God with reverent obedience. We must worship Him with reverent obedience. Sadly, this may sound like a bit of an over-exaggeration, but I, I think it's fair to say that in the broader church today, there is, especially in the modern evangelical church, a distinct lack of this posture. I couldn't tell you with certainty how this came to be or when this came to be, but for whatever reason, as when it comes to worship today, worshiping the Lord, there are many who, who have a posture of casualness far too much casualness. Many who think that as long as they mean well, as long as they have good intentions in their heart, then their worship must therefore be acceptable to the Lord. And so in the book of First Chronicles, we find this same story of the ark's journey from the house of Abinadab finally to or to the city of Jerusalem, but in that book it's told not over the course of only one chapter, it's told over the course of three chapters. And so therefore we get a bit more of the detail as to how this all happened, how it all transpired. And there in the time between this first attempt, the failed attempt with Uzzah's death, and the second t- attempt, which was the successful attempt, we find King David talking with the Levites, the priests. And so he says to them, in verse 13 of First Chronicles 15, he says, Because you did not carry the ark the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him according to the rule. And so we see that they consecrate themselves. And then in the 15th verse, we're then told that the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So the point then for us is clear. We must worship God according not, our, not to our wills, but to God's will. Worship is not just about worshiping God however we think is best or however we think is most appropriate. Uzzah most certainly was doing what we might say is a good thing by protecting the ark and preventing it from falling. But in the big picture, he was doing the wrong thing by casually disregarding the express command of the Lord. And so we might benefit from thinking of some applications of this principle in our own lives today. How does the Lord call us to worship Him? And so I think we can think about our own worship as a congregation. This could be a good starting point for thinking about this question. Do we worship the Lord in gathered worship in ways that we think are best appropriate? Or do we think about Worshiping the Lord according to how he has called us to do so. What is his will? And overall, I think we, we do a good job of this. What we do in our church is seriously thought through how we worship, how what elements are included in the worship service. For those of you who have been here long enough, you may recall that there was once a time when we did skits in the worship service. Uh, and this isn't to rag on anyone who did that or anyone who participated in those. But as the leadership of our church has thought more and more about this question, and we've wondered what elements of worship are expressly told us in Scripture, expressly commanded, and so we must think, is what we're doing in worship something God has called us to do? And so you may have noticed that there are no longer skits done in our worship services. This isn't because skits are bad or God hates drama or plays or musicals, but it's simply because in worship we are called to worship God how he calls us to worship him. It's a simple principle. Uh, I once in a conversation or overheard a conversation, I walked into one of my professor's class or his uh, office in my seminary, and I heard him laughing and he was talking to a friend and I asked, what are you guys laughing about? And he said, "Well, we were just laughing because we were in the staff room over lunch, and somebody mentioned that this principle, which often goes by the title of the regulative principle of worship, it's it's a bit like the love languages. The love languages, as if you've heard of them, are this idea that we should love our spouse and love others uh, in ways that will be uh, according to their desire and will. So, if your spouse loves to receive quality time, you should." Spend quality time with your spouse. Instead of trying to give gifts to your spouse, if they receive love through quality time, you should try to orient your approach through that means. And so they were just laughing about this connection, but it's always stuck with me. We should love and worship the Lord the way that he desires us to do so. It's a simple principle, but I think it totally changes how we consider worship in the church. But that, of course, is just one of the lessons here in chapter 6. And so before we begin thinking to ourselves that our worship must be very cold and humdrum and dry, it's important to continue on and read the story for all it's worth. And so after Uzzah is struck down, David, who again, is feeling that mixture of fear and anger towards the Lord. He decides that the ark is too much of a liability now to bring into his own city. If, If the ark can result in the death of Uzzah, there are un- untold hundreds, David begins to think to himself, I think, who could be possibly killed if, that's, if this is brought into my city in too much of a hasty way. More fresh corpses wouldn't have been good for his PR. And so he calls the whole thing off and decides to put the ark in the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite, who is a, a Gentile, a Gittite meaning he's from Gath of Philistia, and so he was a Philistine. And it sits there for three months in this Gentile's house and begins to bring great blessing to this man. Presumably, him and his family, though they were not Israelites, they treat the ark in a way that brings them blessing. They, they defer to it. They, they honor God's presence in the ark. And so David hears about this blessing. It's beginning to get so great that word comes to him and he decides we must go and get the ark. It's time. It's been three months. We need to have it now in our city. I've pitched the tent for it and now it's time for it to find its home. Only this time, of course, as we've seen, he makes sure to do it the right way. The Levites carry it on their poles. And in verse 13, it even tells us that when they had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, likely as a show of reverence and honor. And this, by the way, was probably something in the in the Hebrew, it, it's kind of ambiguous, but it could be that every six steps they paused and they made a sacrifice to continue on. All the way from Obed-Edom's house to the city of Jerusalem, which would have been several miles. But then the next verses shed more light on this long procession where we can see that joyful celebrations of the first attempt are resumed, and now they're bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and the excitement is picked right back up. This is not cold and humdrum and dry. In verse 14, we read that David danced before the Lord with all his might. I love that qualifying statement, with all his might. You can imagine him sweating and huffing and puffing, puffing, breathing very hard. Because he was excited. And it says also he was wearing a linen ephod. So here you have the king of all Israel who has exchanged his royal robes, his dignified royal robes, for the humble dress of a priest. And he's busting a move with all his might. He's just going for it, dancing. Probably like a madman. And I don't have any idea what ancient Jewish dancing would have looked like. I have no idea. There's unfortunately no YouTube videos online of what dancing looked like these 3,000 years ago. But we can expect that David was really going for it. He was really making a fool of himself. Especially given the final episode with his wife, Michael. The bottom line, though, was that David was glad. David had joy in his heart. For him, as a man after God's own heart, having God's presence brought into his city was a moment of great celebration. This was not merely going to be a sign of his own political power and strength. For him, it was a gift, a pure gift, to have the presence of God close to him. And so this presents us with a second key lesson from the text. We must worship God with gladness And joy, Just as there is a noticeable lack of reverence and obedience in some parts of the church today, there's also a lack of gladness and joy in others. Yet, worshiping with this kind of gladness and joy is just what the Scriptures call us to do, which is why we started our service with Psalm 100, where we see the words, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. The effect of God's presence in the life of His people is joy and gladness and song. That is how the people of God respond. When a lowly, sinful human being is blessed with the presence of the Almighty Lord, this is the natural response. Now, this isn't to say that we we Christians are supposed to always be bubbly and happy and excited and extroverted. No, in some ways, we, like our our Messiah, will be people of sorrow, acquainted with grief. But nevertheless, in spite of it all, we are to be a people of gladness and joy and song. Because God's presence abides in us. The true tabernacle, the true tent among the nations of the earth. Therefore, we can say that there is nothing inherently holy or good or pious about merely serious reverent and solemn worship some take church in their church or some take pride in their church's formalism their seriousness their reverence without realizing the joy that is supposed to also be evident in the churches this sort of fight goes back and forth i've heard many times people in more charismatic or expressive traditions call churches in more Traditional traditions, dead churches, dry churches, spiritless churches. And I don't think that that's the case. Second Samuel 6 teaches us that both aspects of worship have their place in the worship of God. Serious joy is how I've often heard it put. And I think that's a good way of thinking about it. All of this then leads us to the final episode of the text with the woman whom the text calls Michael, the daughter of Saul, but is, as I've said, actually one of David's wives as well. It's interesting that it notes her as the daughter of Saul. It sort of uh, divides her a little bit from, and distinguishes her from David just being his wife. She's also a daughter of Saul. And so it's interesting also to think at the end of the passage uh, there's sort of a curse or a statement mentioned about her that no children came from her line. That really is the end then of Saul's reign. Uh, he has no, uh, no children, no one who will ch- challenge for the throne after David. But as the procession of, with the ark and the thousands of joyful worshipers enter the city, led by their priestly king wearing this linen ephod, we find that instead of joining in these celebrations and the excitement and joy, Michael is up in the palace looking out her window, looking down on these people literally and figuratively. And she's most embarrassed by her, her husband, David. And she has disdain and hatred In her heart, we're told. So, meanwhile, upon completing the ark's journey into the tabernacle, David sort of ends this great time by sacrificing many animals and by then celebrating a great feast, giving the proceeds, the distribution to the people so that they're eating meat and different kinds of cakes and celebrating with gladness in their hearts. And at the end of the meal, we're told that everyone returns to their household, including David. So, David comes home. And instead of receiving this warm welcome and a sort of congratulatory statement from his wife, he's met with a bitter attack and he's mocked. And her words in verse 20 cut straight to the point. She tells him how the king of Israel honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, his female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And so her venomous sarcasm is clear. Instead of celebrating the ark's arrival, as she should have been, with her husband, she's preoccupied with the royal reputation of the family. She's embarrassed not only for David, but also for herself, by his dancing in a linen ephod. She also seems to be calling into question his his marital fidelity. David has a handful of wives at this point, and as we'll see next week in, in, with David and Bathsheba, she has good reason. It's sort of a prescient or uh, a, a, w- a witty uh, understanding of who David really is, uh, although I think that she's wrong for insinuating that David was trying to impress the female slaves. But she does this nonetheless, this Nonetheless, this allegation wasn't completely without warrant. But David responds with an equally sharp defense in verse 21. He says, essentially, it wasn't before the female slaves that I was doing this. He says, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible or undignified than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. In other words, David simply doesn't care about his reputation, about what his wife thinks of him, so long as he is worshiping the Lord with the unity of heart. His single motiv- motivation here in all of this was to glorify the Lord. He cared more about God's glory himself. And so this leads us to our final lesson then of the passage. We must worship God with shameless devotion. And while this may seem clear and obvious to us, it may seem that something that sort of a duh statement that doesn't even need to be said, I would say that today it's really anything but... In an essay written in February of last year, an important author and sort of cultural observer, sociologist named Aaron Wren wrote a piece in First Things magazine entitled The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. And the overall aim of this essay was really just to help the average Christian better understand the environment we live in now as Christians in Western culture and society and how we're perceived by those particularly outside the church, and how we should then sort of move forward. And so to do this, Wren suggests that we should think of the relationship between the broader society and the church as sort of in a sort of historical way, and he proposes what he calls three worlds, three worlds for understanding our situation and so the first world he calls the positive world, and this was society before the year 1994. Uh, and so he basically says here that society at large in this sort of world retained a mostly positive view of Christianity. A good church-going go- person uh, remains Part of being an upstanding citizen. And so that was seen as a good thing. So publicly being a Christian in this sort of period of time would have been a sort of social status enhancer. Uh, And Christian moral norms also were the sort of the basic moral norms of society, and violating them could bring positive or some negative consequences. And so it was sort of a good thing to be a Christian. Christians were looked upon with respect. Not everyone was a Christian, that's totally true, but to be a Christian was seen as having sort of, you're kind of a, maybe a goody two-shoes, but you were seen as someone who had sort of the moral high ground, in a sense. The next world he proposes is what he calls the neutral world, from 1994 to 2014. And here he says that society takes a mostly neutral stance towards Christianity, Christianity no longer has a privileged status, but it's also not disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian in this period had neither a positive nor really a negative impact on one's social status. And Christianity was seen to be a valid option among sort of a pluralistic public square with all kinds of other options that were available. And Christian moral norms in this period retained some, he says, residual effect. They kind of were still existent, but they were being questioned and depending on where you were, uh, sort of geographically different parts of our country, our world. Finally, he then gives the negative world, which he sort of starts in 2014 and says goes through the president, And here he says that society has come to have a mostly negative view of Christianity. So being a Christian here is seen as a social negative Particularly in the elite domains of society, he says. So, Christian morality is expressly repudiated in this world and is seen as a threat to the public good and the public moral order. So, in this world, subscribing to Christianity is actually a, a way of losing status, and it seems to be a violation of the secular moral order, and therefore it brings some negative consequences. For many. And so while he admits that the precise dating of these shifts uh, from 1994 all the way through the present is somewhat arbitrary, it's kind of just what he calls impressionistic. It's hard to really set perfect dates. While he admits that, I, I, I was born in 1990. I lived through the neutral world and this transition. I, can't, I actually graduated college in 2014, and I've noticed this transition. Maybe you've noticed it too. I remember as a kid in the late 90s being sometimes made fun of by other kids as being a goody-two-shoes because I was a Christian kid whose parents went to church and I went with them. And so if I met kids out at the skate park, uh, often that was sort of my reputation, the goody-two-shoes. Now, the goody-two-shoes aren't Christians. Christians are often looked at as being backwards, perverse, going against what our society says is good, We've lived through a complete 180 shift. And so the implications of this for us as Christians are massive. Our society, in some sense, is like Michael, looking out that window, perceiving Christians, being embarrassed for them, being full of scorn for them. Why are you worshiping this God like that? Therefore, brothers and sisters, we should deeply consider who it is we worship. Fifty or sixty, seventy years ago, worshiping God may have brought you privilege in society. It may have brought you status. More and more so, that is not the case. Young people are being raised in a world that will work against them, actively seeks to see them lose their faith, a world that feels vindicated when young people walk away from Christ. So we must remember who it is we worship. We must remind ourselves day by day that though the world may hate us and mock us and despise us, it is the God of David, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom we worship and for who we live. And so let us say the words then. Let us remind ourselves of this truth with the words of King David, who responds to his wife saying, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in the world's eyes, for I will celebrate before the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.